Judges chapter 10, if you notice Sunday, we got as far as verse 16, and then we just stopped. We didn't finish the chapter. I don't know if that was infuriating to you. I hope not. But we got to pick it up right there. Judges 10, verse 17, then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So right there, they're, they're off course. Immediately. Who's the man who is gonna fight for us when the Lord had promised to go before them? I mean, all the way back in the days of Joshua, that he would go before them, he would fight for them. They keep looking for a human leader in the days where there was no king and every man did what was right in his own sight. Who's the man who's gonna fight for us? These are the leaders of a place called Gilead or Galad. Galad means a rocky region. That's a good name because there are inherent problems with this story that we're about to get into tonight. Stones over which scholars trip and saints stumble. Things in this story that people cannot reconcile, struggle to understand, and so like walking over very rocky terrain, people will stub their toes and trip and try to figure it out. We need to tread carefully tonight. Two garrisons, Ammonite and Israelite, are encamped for war. Both are on the east of the Jordan River. So this begins not even in the promised land. This is on the eastern shores. Galad is actually in the region of Gad. Well, Galad is of the tribe of Manasseh, but the city-state, this township, is in the region of Gad. So you should realize already things are mixed up. I mean, there, there's, there's half of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben on the eastern side of the river, but that doesn't necessarily mean everybody who is of Gad is living in Gad and everybody from Manasseh is living in Manasseh. They, they mix up and move around and go all over the place. As I said on Sunday, Little Moabite woman named Ruth and her Israelite mother, Naomi, are at this point heading back into the land of Israel. So people are kind of all over the map, just like they would be today. But Galad is a Manasseh tribe, a Manasseh tribal city within the territory of Gad. Numbers 26, 29 says the sons of Manasseh, of Machir, the family of the Machirites, and Machir became the father of Galad, and Galad the father or the family of the Gileadites or Galadites, and that's who we're talking about and where we're talking about. But this township now of what we call Gilead, but Galad, in this region is suffering a leadership vacuum. Who's gonna lead us? Who's gonna fight for us? Who, who's gonna go before us they need a guardian. Here's part of the things, many things, that makes this a stony climb. And that is that following the Lord's exasperation with Israel that we talked about on Sunday, if you didn't study that with us, go back and, and listen to it, think it through, because God reaches a point where he says enough. He says, my, my soul, my being is short with your miserable efforts. And God is put out and he's tired of it, and he's fed up with Israel coming back and repenting yet again, confessing yet again. Hey, repentance and confession is great, but when it changes nothing, it's exasperating, and any good parent knows that. 
when your kids come back and apologize for the same behavior. And you know, I don't know about you, but as a dad, when I'm exasperated, I, it can go anywhere from me rolling my eyes, all right, Chris, <laughs> to me being visibly angry. You're doing this again, and you're apologizing. Stop doing it. And God is in this place. And I, you know, we have to be careful when we're studying the scriptures. We never want to misrepresent God, right? Moses did one time, and it cost him the promised land. You don't want to misrepresent God's heart or God's intentions. But back in chapter 10, verse 16, where it says he could no longer bear the misery of Israel, literally, it's, he was short with them. His soul was short. With their miserable efforts, he is fed up. And part of how we know this is what it really means, what it translates, is there will now be 71 years of silence. God gets to the point of speaking directly with Israel in chapter 10, but following this, 71 years, we won't hear a thing in terms of speech from the Lord. He won't send a prophet. He's not gonna speak directly. And yet, he's still at work. I say that to remind you that just because God may be silent in your life does not mean he's inactive. Doesn't mean he's paused his work. It doesn't mean he's busy on the other side of the world or unaware of what you're dealing with or what's happening in your life. It never means inactivity when God is quiet. As a matter of fact, Psalm 121 verse one says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains where shall my help come from? And the implication is not from the mountains. The mountains are the problem. The psalmist is crying out saying, I feel like I am surrounded as if by massive mountains coming down upon me. And where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He never sleeps. He's never distracted. He's never off busy doing something else. And he certainly doesn't catnap or slumber when you and I are going through issues in our lives, he is completely aware and he is always at work behind the scenes. John 5, 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is so remarkable. He is working on Shabbat. He's doing what God promised to do. I'm not gonna sleep. I'm not gonna slumber. I'm gonna be at work for you. And so Jesus was and they're upset with him and they're angry with him implication because he was making himself like God. He was doing God things on this day of rest. And Jesus answered in John 5, 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working until now, which means God never stopped working. The 400 years between the Testaments, God didn't stop working. God was not inactive, nor is he inactive in your life when you have prayed and he hasn't responded in 24 hours or a week or 20 years. Just because you're not hearing, just because you're not seeing, don't assume that that means that he is inactive. He often works behind the scenes or in this story's case, behind the stones. 
And so we now meet the next guardian, now Yiptach, Jephthah. We say Jephthah, and I don't know which one I'm gonna say tonight because I've been back and forth in study. Sometimes I say Yiptach, other times I say Jephthah, sometimes I'll say Yephthah. Uh, it's kind of hard sometimes getting the, the, the name to stick one way or the other. Yiptach, Jephthah, it means he opens, he sets free. It also means he lets loose. So depending on what he's doing, and by the way, Jephthah does all of these, okay? He's gonna set free, he's gonna open up, and he's gonna let loose. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, and they said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. Wow, what a bio. I find it interesting, and, and I'm, this is just an application, so don't take it as an interpretation, but he is a valiant warrior, the son of a harlot. And how often do we try to cover up a bad background with mighty acts, acts of righteousness, impressive things, Try to strive beyond because, man, what's back there, we really don't want people to know, so let's distract with great works on our part. And whether you're the son or daughter of a harlot or you are a mighty man or woman of valor, neither one impresses the Lord. Neither one is what matters to him. But this harlot's son, driven out by his brothers, living in the land of Tov, it's ironic because Tov in Hebrew is good. They will say in the morning, Boker Tov, good morning. Tov is good, or morning good, Boker Tov. And so Jephthah is living in a good land <laughs> and worthless fellows gather themselves around him. So he's, he's drawing kind of the riffraff now, bunch of losers. But what human beings might toss out as useless trash, God so easily picks up as useful treasure. This is the way God wants to deal with people and sees people and as we recently talked about, puts his treasure in these jars of clay. I might have a horrible background. I might have a messed up life, having made messed up decisions, doing messed up things from even a messed up genealogy. But when I come to Jesus, it all changes. And I become a treasure in his eyes. And you are a treasure to him. And he puts his spirit in you, in me, as as treasures. God has chosen, remember this, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.27, anytime we start feeling a little bit smug and a little bit proud of ourselves, remember, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what? You're part of the foolish things of the world. He chose you. He's chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man can boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing. If you're gonna boast in anything, boast in the Lord. Boast in the fact that he chose you, though you didn't feel like you were choosable, he chose you. And that's 
That's our boast. Jephthah comes out the gate as a man disregarded and discarded around whom these worthless fellows gather. Sounds a lot like Jesus. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah 53, verse three prophesied. And yet, John chapter one, verse 10 says, he was in the world, the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is Israel, the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus and Yeshua and Jephthah, these, these two men, there's some striking similarities. Now, someone might say, you can't compare Jephthah to Jesus because Jesus wasn't born of a harlot. Well, we know that now, but they didn't then. In fact, word on the street was that he was the son, maybe not of a harlot, but certainly of illegitimacy. The whole virgin birth thing, come on. That made about as much sense in the first century as it makes today. She's pregnant. Well, yes, it's a virgin birth. Oh, right. <laughs> How do you think it went for Jesus? We don't hear a whole lot about that, but you know what? Even as an adult, they were still tagging him with illegitimacy. We're told in John chapter eight, verse 40, he says, you're seeking to kill me. A man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, and Jesus is implying the devil. But they said to him, we are not born of fornication. In other words, like you. They said, we have one father, God. They were malicious. This is, this is a sting. You know, Jesus is there. There obviously are followers and disciples and people who love Jesus and we're hanging on every word. They're in the crowd and the Pharisees and Jesus is talking back and forth and he's dialed in with the Pharisees and he's calling them out and they are malicious when they say we were not born of fornication. Why are they so malicious? Why so mean-spirited? Well, partially jealousy. You know, they see the rise of Jesus. They feel the threat. They see the people gathering around him and they're not gonna have any of it. But there's also something else here. There's legality. You see, Torah law itself rejected the illegitimate child. For his brothers to boot Jephthah out, now that was mean and the way they did it was wrong and, and not right, but, but yet Torah would not allow a man like Jephthah to enter into the assembly as an illegitimate son of his father, Gilad. Deuteronomy 23, verse two. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Torah's tough. And you may hear that and think, wow, I don't, I don't, how do you reconcile that with a gracious, loving God? No illegitimate, like, like it's the child's fault. Like my parentage had anything to do with me. Look, I just showed up. They made the choice, right? But now the illegitimate son, the illegitimate daughter is tagged and cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, understand that law is not about the exclusion of the illegitimate as much as the emphasis of holiness, the emphasis of the holiness of God in the assembly. 
what he's trying to teach Israel through, through Torah. He's trying to help them understand, look, when you come into my assembly, I am perfect righteousness. When you come to bring your sacrifices, when you come to the tabernacle, later the temple, when you come to worship, you need to recognize who it is you're coming to. I don't know that we do that today very well. I think there are a lot of times we come stumbling into to the church and we're not recognizing we are coming before a holy, awesome, perfect, righteous God and we're walking in with our stuff. We need to be in fear and awe before him at his awesomeness, at, at his perfection. Automatically, by the way, the whole idea of illegitimacy applies to every single one of us, we should all be excluded from the assembly of God. There's only one way to become a legitimate child of God. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, John 1 verse 12. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice that, that's remarkable. When John writes that, talking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it erases the legality that no illegitimate child can come into the presence of the Lord. Now the illegitimate child is made legitimate by the legitimacy of Jesus. That's awesome. That means illegitimacy no longer applies if you have been born again. And you could look at it that way that we all have been born out of illegitimacy, out of the flesh and into, into the spirit, born of the spirit as legitimate children of God through Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, John 1:17, were realized through Jesus Christ. So we have this man, Yepta, Yep, talk. And, and, and he's an illegitimate child and he's driven out by his brothers. He's got worthless guys around him. Jesus had the apostles, so you can still see the, parable go, the parallel goes on. And, and he's now getting called up. He's another unexpected choice by God who has this amazing way of picking up the trash and giving it value. Verse four, it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Galad went out to Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our chief so that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Oh, that's interesting. Now they need him. Well, I don't care if he's trash. He's a good warrior. Dude's a fighter. We need some help. Go get him. So they call on him. Interesting that Jephthah responds did you not hate me, verse seven, and drive me from my father's house so that, so why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of God said to Jephthah, well, for this reason we've now returned to you that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Galad. Do you see what they did? They didn't answer his question. Why are you coming to me now? Uh, so you can fight for us. Well, I know you want me to fight for you, but why now? After you rejected me, and they just skip right on by that. So you can fight for us. So, verse nine, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. 
Well, then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilad, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. By the way, Jephthah's harlot mother, Josephus tells us, was an Ishmaelite. She wasn't even an Israelite harlot. Talk about a complete and total outsider, which means Jephthah, this now guardian of Israel, is half Israelite, half Ishmaelite. And yet this half Ishmaelite knows the Lord. So catch that. Don't, don't miss that. He says, if Yahweh gives them up to me, if, if Yahweh wins this fight, will I be your leader then? So he's already acknowledging, unlike them, they went to find a man and he's saying it's gonna be Yahweh's work. I like this guy already. If Yahweh does it. And I also love in verse 11 that it says, he spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. There at Mizpah. What does that mean? It means he prayed. He spoke all these words. He laid this out to the Lord at Mizpah. By the way, anyone sick of passwords? Can I get a show of hands? How many of you are sick to death of passwords? This is one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to the kingdom. Because I don't think there are gonna be any passwords anymore in the kingdom. There's not gonna be any two-step verification. Done, over, finished. We can just be who we are. The password for Jake is gonna be Jake. That's it. And we won't have to worry about anyone stealing his identity because he's gonna be in his glorified body without asthma, by the way. That's pretty cool. Passwords, what are you talking, why pass? Listen, I am sick and tired of them, but I'm gonna give you four tonight. Four passwords to jot down, and the first password in our study is prayer. You'll see why I'm saying passwords. Password of prayer. The first thing we see here out of Jephthah is this is a man who prayed. He spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. Now, Mizpah is a location. There are more, there's more than one Mizpah in Israel. This one up in the north, or, or actually, sorry, this one on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Mizpah, the watchtower. But it's an interesting connection that, what is he doing? Jephthah is praying at the watchtower. You could call the prayer of godly people our watchtower. And this is where we call out to God. This is where he responds to us. This is, this is where we get direction for what's coming. This is where we gain wisdom and understanding. This is where we find peace. The watchtower. This is where we go for real security. I'm not talking about watchtower like Jehovah's Witnesses. But Mizpah is that, that place of security. Passcodes and passwords are perpetually outdated, which is why we hate them so much. If I could have made a password 20 years ago and I could still use the same one today, which I don't, <laughs> and neither do any of you, that'd be fine. But passwords have to be changed. Verifications invariably fail. I got a text on the Sunday that Jake was teaching in the middle of service. I got a text at home. Hey, do you know what the passcode is on your iPad, which is the church iPad for worship? It's that one back there. Do you know what the passcode is there? Because we can't get up to it, to, on it up here and we need the two-step verification. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. It's ridiculous. Prayer secures our faith. Prayer 
establishes our, our calling and our positions in the spiritual fight before Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you don't have to worry about a password or a passcode or a verification. You go to the Lord. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, men especially, listen, therefore I want or I will or I desire for men of every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And I know I've made this point many times, but Paul's calling out men. I want men everywhere to pray. He's not saying I don't want women to pray. I think Paul's acknowledging, as I have seen over and over in years of ministry, that women show up for prayer. It's the men. And I know I've said that, and I know some of you guys are tired of hearing it. Well, show up for prayer. This is a godly man. It is the godly man who prays. The godly man who steps up to the watchtower of prayer. This is the kind of soldier that God can use. And so before Yiftach does anything, before Jephthah steps out to serve the Lord as a, a mighty, valiant warrior to fight against Ammon, we've already seen him refer to Yahweh and now come before the, the Lord and, and speak these words in prayer before him. Verse 12, now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon saying, what is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land. We're in territory Gad. Manasseh, Gad, Reuben. Yes, it's on the eastern side of the Jordan, but this is territory that was given by the Lord. And I know we've been over this, that, that the original promised land was going to be west of the Jordan, at least in terms of bringing the people into the land. God wanted to establish all the people there first, and then spread out because the ultimate promised land, the one that we will see in the kingdom, is far greater than anything Israel has ever had. You Bible students know the numbers. 30,000 square miles was, was Solomon's kingdom. What's promised by God to Israel is 300,000 square miles. So it's gonna be far bigger than this, but half Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, these three tribes on the eastern side, they weren't just hanging out outside of the land. By this point, God said, okay. Moses said, all right, if you'll fight for your brothers, you can have this land, and God gave it to them. So this is their land, and that's what Jephthah's saying. Why are you coming out against us to fight against my land? The kings of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Yabok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. <laughs> Have you heard this song before? Perhaps even more recently, it is amazing. Same thing is being said today, the dispute over the land of Israel. Whose land is it? Israel usurped it. They're occupying it, the, the, the world will say. Palestinians will say. It's occupied territory. Even today, I was reading in the news that Netanyahu is gonna fast track land in, in Judea, in Samaria, eastern side of the Jordan. And uh, there, there are several, well, obviously, people are all up in arms and freaking out because of this extreme conservative, conservative government under, under Netanyahu is just gonna destroy all hope of peace and everything's gonna fall apart. This didn't begin, this, this land of Israel as it is today, I want you to follow me historically just for a minute. 
It didn't begin with the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. Back in 1897, a man by the name of Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl was calling for a Jewish national home. He was one who stepped up and recognized, he was a journalist, who recognized if the Jewish people don't have a homeland, a place to call our own, we will cease to exist as a people. What was remarkable is when Theodore Herzl grew up in the mid-1800s, he was a, a, an adult in the late 1800s, when he grew up and came on the scene, the, the, the Jewish people throughout the world had been in existence as the Jewish people for over 1,800 years. Since the fall of Jerusalem, they had never ceased to be a people, and yet Herzl, watching anti-Semitism play out around the world, said, we have to do something. We have to have a place, a country to call our own. And so they held the first Zionist Congress there in Basel, Switzerland. That was 1897. The land was not established at that conference, nor was it established by the Balfour Declaration. That was in 1917. Lord Balfour, I like the word, the name Balfour, it sounds so British. Lord Balfour is here for tea. He was Britain's uh, foreign secretary, and, and he wrote a letter, and you can look at it, you can Google it, you can see the letter that was written that offered what was then all of Palestine. Remember, they called it Palestine because the Romans, back in around 110 AD, renamed it Palestina, which means Philistine land. And the whole point was to offend the Jews. Palestina. And so it was called Palestine all the way up until this point in the early 19th or 20th century. So 1917, Lord Balfour wrote this paper with the authority to do so, saying the British government had determined after World War I that this territory that they now had control over, the British mandate it was called, was going to be given to the Jewish people for a homeland. Understand that the Balfour Declaration of 1917 included all of the land that is now Israel and Jordan. All of it was offered to the Jews for a national homeland. That didn't last long because in 1939, there was written the British White Paper. The British White Paper cut Palestine in half because they wanted to give half to the Arabs and half to the Jews. You know what that was? It was a two-state solution. You hear that phrase all the time today. We need a two-state solution. There was one. It's what Britain did. We're gonna give what, what they called at first Trans-Jordan, now it's Jordan, and then we're gonna give Israel, and we'll just divide it down the middle and half for the Jews, half for the Arabs, everyone will be happy. No, everyone would not be happy. The Jews were, they were thrilled. The Arabs were not happy with this plan. But it wasn't then, it wasn't even the UN Declaration of November of 1947. It wasn't Israel's Declaration of Independence in May of 1948, May 14th. You should know that date. It wasn't the Six-Day War in June of 1967 when Israel expanded their territory and for the first time since AD 70 regained full control of the Temple Mount and stormed Jerusalem once again to the shouts of hallelujah from the soldiers. But that didn't establish the land. The Yom Kippur War, 
1972 that expanded territory even further, Golan Heights. Man, do you realize in that war where they were attacked on Yom Kippur, their most holy day of the year, by uh, Arab armies surrounding, that they actually pushed back, and within a week, they were halfway to Damascus before Russia said, you'd better stop or we're gonna step in. So they said, all right. And they backed up to the Golan Heights, it was President Trump that was the first president in American history since 1948 to recognize the Golan Heights as Israel. So none of these things are what determine the land that Israel lives in, dwells in, and rightfully has today. The reality is that the Arab-Israeli conflict of today is ancient. This has been going on since before even Jephthah. But what's fascinating in this chapter is Jephthah answers the Arab-Israeli conflict. This could apply today. I would love for somebody to stand up in the useless nation, United Nations and read Judges chapter 11. Listen to it, verse 14. Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the sons of Ammon. We didn't take it. For when they came up from Egypt and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. And then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom. This is southern Jordan. So they went down and around the land. Rather than through these regions, they respectfully went around, saying, please, uh, uh, where, where we are, land of Edom, and they went around the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab. So that would be even east of Jordan today. And they camped beyond the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please, let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Yahatz and fought with Israel Verse 21, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. That's now our land, thank you very much. And then it says, they possessed all the territory, verse 22, of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Yabok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Ammonites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Did you not possess what Hamash, your God, gives you? Or do you not possess what Hamash, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever Yahweh, our God, has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now, Jephthah may have a little syncretism going on here, or he may just be diplomatic. The fact that he acknowledges, well, if, if you take some territory, don't you believe that your God gave it to you? That could just be diplomacy, but it also could be a little bit of, hey, you know, we got our God, you got your God, and our God gave us this land, so it's our land. But that's the point that he's making. God gave this to us. We didn't take it. He gave it. 
He says, are you any better than Balak, verse 25, son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight against them? Verse 26, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? By the way, side note, this is how we date the book of Judges. This is how we know how long time has gone by. We know right now from the mouth of Jephthah that we have been within the time of the judges since Joshua 300 years. And it's this verse that people use to set that that chronology. He's saying, we've been here. Why have you never fought for it before now? So now 300 years later, you're saying it's ours, give it back? Interesting. I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent to him. Password number two, providence. Providence. We begin with prayer, and now he makes the argument of providence, which is Israel's rightful argument to possess the land. Why is it the land of Israel? Lord Balfour? The white paper? A declaration of independence? No. It is the land of Israel because of providence. Because God has given it to his people. That's what Jephthah's saying 3,200 years ago. That, That is what we're hearing now. We didn't take it. God gave it. We possess it. Because he gave it to it. Do you realize that Israel is the only country in history that can make that claim legally? I mean, they've they've got the paperwork. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your seed as the dust of the earth so that anyone, if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so the Lord begins to establish. It's actually an ancient song This land is your land. It is not their land. I mean, you can sing it however you want. I'm giving this to you, Abraham, and to your descendants after you, and he makes it even more clear. Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. Remember, he tells Abraham, he says, I want you to come and I want you to make a a sacrifice. We're We're gonna sign a blood covenant here. And he took the animals and he carved them up and he laid the pieces on the other side. There's a field of blood in between. And, and what you would do in that blood covenant is you and the other party would walk the field of blood together. Well, Abraham waited until he became incredibly drowsy and they began to drift off. And it came about, Genesis 15, 17, when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord, literally Lord, cut covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. From Note this, from the river Egypt, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, 
the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cabanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. I've given it to you. That is the 300,000 square miles that I referenced earlier. God gave the land. And I ask you this question, what nation in the history of the world after being invaded, fighting back and acquiring more land in the fight was ever required to return it? And yet we live in a world where politically the nations say Israel has to give it back. That the two-state solution now, there already was one, Israel and Jordan, but now we want another two-state solution. And by the way, should there ever be a two-state quote-unquote solution of Israel and a new Palestine, it will not be enough. You will hear the phrase come up almost immediately, we need a two-state solution to divide up Israel all the more. Because in the charter of Hamas and Hezbollah and the terror organizations in the Middle East, the charter doesn't talk about an Israel at all, doesn't even recognize the existence of Israel, wants to drive the Jew into the Mediterranean Sea. That's the purpose. Two-state solution, this pastor's opinion, is bogus. Gotta give the land back. And so Jephthah here on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, he raises the issue of Sihon and Balak and implied there is Ug, the other king, the ones they took out, all these aggressors who decided to stand against Israel and what happened? They lost their land because God fought for Israel and gave it to Israel. As Israel defended themselves, God gave them both the victory and the territory, and the territory is rightfully theirs. Was rightfully theirs in Jephthah's day is rightfully theirs today. And if it's not rightfully theirs, then we better start talking about giving back California, which I know a lot of people are willing to do. <laughs> Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, let's just give it back to Mexico. No one's asking us to do that. Of course, that would solve the border immigration problem. But Jephthah is speaking from spiritual authority here. This is an authority that neither ancient Ammon nor the modern United Nations are willing to accept. Ancient Ammon, the king, the sons of Ammon, disregarded the message. Literally, they wouldn't listen, which Jephthah sent to him. There is a higher authority, you all know, than any human counsel. In the second Psalm, verse one, David asks, why are the nations in an uproar? You could ask that question right now. And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers Take counsel together. Literally, they, they mutter together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's the authority. The authority of God the Father through Jesus Christ. And it is that authority that establishes Israel and will reestablish Israel as the nation among all nations in the kingdom that is to come. Back to Jephthah, verse 29. 
And this is where it gets a little rocky. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Note that, be aware of that. He is walking in the spirit. In fact, the phrase, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah as with Gideon before him, it is not the spirit of the Lord came upon him, it's that he clothed himself with Jephthah. The spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Jephthah. So he has now, we would say come upon, but he now is indwelling Jephthah as his servant. So that he passed through Galad and Manasseh. And then he passed through Mitzpah of Galad. And from Mitzpah of Galad, he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me and I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Minit, 20 cities as far as Abel-Karamim, so that the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. She was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. Daddy's girl. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low and you are among those who trouble me for I have given my word to Yahweh and I can't take it back. So she said to him, and I think she expresses the same faith here that Isaac expressed to Abraham. My father, you've given your word to Yahweh. Do to me as you have said since Yahweh has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And if I was writing the Hebrews Hall of Faith, I would have said Jephthah's daughter was the faithful one. Because she says, whatever it is, not even knowing what his vow was, or, or maybe she did know. Maybe she had overheard his vow. But either way, she says, you have to keep your word to Yahweh. Even if it hurts me, you gotta keep your word. Amazing faith. She said to her father, however, verse 37, let this thing be done for me. Let me go alone. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. So she's gonna take a bunch of her girlfriends and they're gonna go and they're gonna mourn this vow and mourn what's about to happen to her. Verse 38, then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Did he offer his daughter as a human sacrifice to Yahweh. Don't answer that yet. Let me follow that up with a second question. Would God accept an offering of human sacrifice? Let me answer that or, or follow that up with a third question. Would God honor Jephthah as a man of faith in the Hebrews Hall of Faith if the keeping of his vow was the sacrifice of his human daughter? You think God showing the consistency of who Yahweh is 
would even receive that or accept it or honor him as faithful because he did it. Hebrews 11.32, time will fail me if I tell of Gidon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. I mean, of all the judges you could name after reading this story, don't you think you would just kind of exclude Jephthah so you don't have to deal with the issue? But he's named as one of the faithful, along with David and Samuel and the prophets. What do we do with this? And the answer is we come back Sunday and really take some time to talk about it. So I'm gonna give you between now and then to think about it and to consider, you know, what do you think? Doesn't really matter what we think, but I think there's an answer here. This much we can answer, and I wanna answer tonight. Was Jephthah's vow rash or was it righteous? Password number three. So we have prayer, right? We have providence and we have impetuosity. So there's your P if you wanna stay with it. Impetuosity or lack of prudence. Jephthah is imprudent. He lets loose here. Now he lives up to that aspect of his name. He lets loose when he should have held his tongue. Absolutely unquestionably, he spoke out of turn. He said something that I don't think he should have said. Now someone would say, well, wait a minute, but the, but the Holy Spirit's in him. Okay, yeah, we'll deal with that. We'll talk about that. But man, he just goes off and says, whatever comes out of my house, Lord, you give me victory and I will sacrifice it to you. I don't know what he's thinking. His cat? <laughs> Mother-in-law? I don't know what, what <laughs> maybe. What he has in mind, Who's, what's gonna come out? No, you know, he just rashly fires this off. And the Bible says, Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. I like that, a cool spirit. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. The older I've gotten, the more I've thought, and if I just shut up, I won't seem so dumb. A prudent, a wise person is one who holds their tongue and doesn't just blurt out, say whatever's on their mind, with impetuosity. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 14 the old preacher says, yet the fool multiplies words. I used, and I'm, okay, I gotta tell you this. I'm not saying my daughter's a fool. My oldest daughter, Hannah, she's not. She's very wise. But when she was a girl, when she was especially a preteen, biggest problem that we had with my daughter was that she could not shut up. <laughs> and I'm talking about when we would get into an argument. You know, I would catch her on something or I would say, you need to do this. And she would argue back. And I would say, and Hannah, we're not gonna talk about this. And she would just continue to argue. And I would say, one more word out of you and you're grounded for a week. And she'd go, but, blah, 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 blah. and I'd go, grounded, one week. And she'd go, blah, 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 two weeks. You know, I mean, she was grounded for life. She's still grounded today. <laughs> she just couldn't help herself. Now that's a preteen, I get that. You know, as, as we mature in the spirit, we ought to be able to hold our tongues. I believe the ninth of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. Can you hold your tongue? Or do you have to blurt? I'm not calling Jephthah a fool, but his vow is impulsively foolish. 
He doesn't know what's gonna happen. He doesn't know what's gonna come out the door, but he shouts this out, and sometimes we can even do that self-righteously. We can make some kind of self-righteous vow, and we really just need to hold our tongue. Let the Lord prove himself. Well, chapter 12, and we'll come back to that Sunday. We'll walk it out, think it through. I think there's some very definite indication as to what happened. But chapter 12, verse one says, the men of Ephraim were summoned and they crossed the Yaphon, or to Yaphon, or Zaphon, sorry, and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We'll burn your house down on you. What is wrong with these guys? Here they are again, the Ephraimites. You went to battle without us. Bunch of whiny babies because they weren't called to go to war. Come on. It's ridiculous. Our contentious buddies are back. Ephraim has a jealousy problem that now goes back 50 years to Gideon. And they say, <laughs> Jephthah actually says to him, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. In other words, he had called on them and they didn't respond. But now that he's won, now they're upset that they weren't involved. But he'd already called on them. Verse three says, when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me and now we've got new battle lines now it's not Israel versus Ammon. Now it's Israel versus Israel. Man of Gilead, of Manasseh, against the tribe of Ephraim, and they're going at it. Israel infighting, Israelite infighting in this situation is a far greater threat than anything the Ammonites could have dished up. This is far more dangerous. Do we ever fight the wrong enemy? You know the answer to that. All too often. There's a 15th century Puritan clergyman named Thomas Manton who said, quote, division in the church breeds atheism in the world. It's a potent statement. Division in the church breeds atheism in the world. When we divide, when we talk down, when we badmouth, when we contend with each other, in the church, against another church, we're doing a service to the enemy and we're fueling the fires of disbelief because the world looks at that and goes, oh, so that's what it means to be Christian. And you all have heard it. It's, it's frustrating to me because the world loves to call the church a bunch of hypocrites. Well, the world's a bunch of hypocrites and we happen to be human too. Hypocrisy is a human problem. It's not a church problem. And yet the world is always listening, always looking Disbelief is looking for justification for disbelief. And when the non-believer looks at the church and sees division and squawking and infighting, we just encourage their unbelief. Christian unity doesn't just show that we love or care for each other. Christian unity is the heart of our message. Jesus put it this way, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's what made the commandment new, by the way. Do you realize that? It was not a new commandment that they love each other. That's an old commandment. That's a Torah commandment. 
love one another was in Torah law. The entirety of Torah law hung on loving God and loving each other, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's Torah. So when Jesus says, a new command I give you that you love one another, he brings the qualification that makes the command new, even as I have loved you. So your brotherly love no longer applies. Now we're talking unconditional love. I don't care what someone does to you, you love them. And especially in the church. This is the toughest for me personally. I don't, I'm not gonna speak for you. This is the single toughest command in scripture. Love one another as I have loved you. That means I have to love someone who's been a jerkwad to me. I have to love someone who's treated me unfairly. I have to love someone that I've treated unfairly. You know that saying that I've shared before and no one likes when I say it, and I don't like it either, but it's, it's true. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. I mean, ow. But it's so vital we comprehend this. You love each other as I have loved you. And then Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, Remember that Gideon, 50 years earlier, pacified the Ephraimites. He, he spoke a, a kind word, a gentle answer that turns away wrath. But remember Proverbs 51, 15 verse one also says a harsh word stirs up anger and Jephthah will get stirred up. He's not gonna have any of it. He is not gonna, from this point, speak a kind word to Ephraim. He's got a different plan in mind. Again, remember that Jephthah has, is walking with the Holy Spirit, and remember that Jephthah is mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Side note, just because he's in the Hebrews Hall of Faith does not be, mean that he is a Hebrew of perfection. Just because you happen to be a person of faith in Jesus Christ does not mean you are a person of perfection. Being perfected, yes, being sanctified, yes. Perfect, no. And so here's Jephthah, verse four. He gathered all the men of Galad and fought Ephraim. And the men of Galad defeated Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, O Giladites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. Well, the Giladites captured the fords of the Jordan Opposite Ephraim. So Ephraim coming right up to the Jordan and then right across the other side, you've got the Gileadites who captured that side of it. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilad would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, they would say to him, say now Shibolet. But he said, Sibolet, for he could not pronounce it correctly and then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 men of Ephraim because of bad pronunciation. <laughs> A password. Jephthah and the Giladites, they came up with this, this password. Password number four in your notes is pronunciation. And it was a word. The word's not the deal. The, the word is insignificant. But this is a password right in the story a code word that they knew, okay, you say you're not of Ephraim, and they captured someone trying to cross, are you of Ephraim? No. Well, then say Shibboleth. They couldn't. They couldn't because of their dialect. They could only say S and not Sh. They couldn't say that the Shem 
sound in Hebrew, which is a very Hebrew letter, but for some reason the Ephraimites had this different dialect, and, and of course we understand dialects will happen. My son Corey years ago uh, gave me for Christmas Jeff Foxworthy's Redneck Dictionary, <laughs> which is all about dialect, right? Uh, I'll give you some examples. Here's some good ones. Afar, afar. Afar is an object in the state of combustion. Yeah, it's, there's no sense in us being this cold, let's build afar. <laughs> Another word, this is a good one, annuity. Annuity is having forethought or intuition. I couldn't hear him, but I knew what he was saying. <laughs> or how about this one, one more, isolate, which is an explanation for extreme tardiness. Sorry, isolate, but I hit a deer on the way over. <laughs> Shibolet. Shibolet. Say shibolet, they said. Shibolet. And they would slay the person because they couldn't say it. Shibolet in Hebrew means flowing stream, which is interesting. So even the, the password was the Jordan River. Shibolet. Say shibolet. Say flowing stream. And they couldn't say it. Shibolet can also, and I don't know why, I didn't have time to dig out this one. Not that important. It also means ears of corn. So the word shibboleth is not the issue. The fact is, it was a passcode that they were using. Here's the deal. The meaning is insignificant. The pronunciation was life or death. One word meant life or death. 42,000 men of Ephraim were killed by a single word. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Now, if you're like me, you read that and go, oh boy, that's a problem. He says, for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And there is deep, righteous wisdom in that. But there is a word that allows a person to cross the Jordan, as it were, into the promised land of certain salvation today. And that word is a name, and that is the name of Jesus. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And by the way, and I find this fascinating, and I'm still trying to work out exactly how this, how this plays before the Lord. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, note this, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. You can't say it. You might say, well, Rick, you just said it. I'm quoting scripture. You can't say it with the heart. You can't curse Jesus by the Spirit of God. It, it can't be done, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That means if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit gave you the ability to utter Jesus as your Lord. That's profound. It doesn't work if it's not supernatural. And so even the speaking of Jesus, even faith that comes is given, like the land of Israel, given to Israel. Faith that comes into my life and to your life is a faith that has been given. I'm not talking about predestination or determinism. 
I'm talking about God who opens wide the opportunity for salvation and says, by a word you will be saved if you will believe in Jesus, if you will cry out in the name of Jesus, not just as a word, but from the heart. By a word you're saved, and by a word you're condemned. And it's just like we see with the 42,000 of Ephraim. Nobody is talked into being a Christian. In fact, nobody reasons their way into faith. There is a moment in time where the heart opens and God drops faith in. And a person says, Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, you are Savior. And salvation enters that house that day. Our mouths speak what's in the heart. Jesus made that very clear. And a lot of bad stuff that flows out of our mouths is because of what's going on in the heart. In the same way, the faith that God generates there, it emits the truth of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. So I can tell you this much. His name is a name that you will never be impetuous or rash to speak. If you want to speak at all, speak the name of Jesus. Now, if you think the story of Jephthah is difficult, if it's a stony path, I can tell you that the story of Jesus is far more difficult for people. Understanding this, and we'll figure it out, we'll walk it out Sunday morning, and we'll, we'll, we'll take the, the path through the stones and, and understand what's being said here. But Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve... The stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they're disobedient to what? To the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Disobedient to the word. You're gonna stumble over Jesus. He is a rock of stumbling. He's a stone of offense. Well, Let's finish up chapter 12 over the next 25 years now. Three more guardians are gonna rise up. Tells us in verse seven, Jephthah judged Israel just six years, by the way. This is a short judgeship. Six years, and then Jephthah the Giladite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilad. Now, three more judges. The next one, which is the ninth, if you are keeping track, the ninth legitimate judge of Israel. I'm not talking about... Um, Oh, what was his name? Abysmalek. Uh, this is now, verse eight, Ibzan of Bethlehem. He judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters who he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Ibzan means uh, swift, swift. It, it, it's only used here in the entire Hebrew scripture, so it's really hard to compare Ibzan to something else. It's the only time uh, an Ibzan is named, but it means swift, and I think it fits because he came and went swiftly. So we just call him Swifty. Seven years. It's not even significant that he was born in Bethlehem. This is probably not Bethlehem Ephrathah, in the scriptures, the Bethlehem of Jesus' birth, the Bethlehem that David grew up in, is always called either Bethlehem in Judah or Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is just called Bethlehem, and there was more than one, and this is probably the one that was up in the northern territory of Sebulun. 
So he's born in that town. That's irrelevant. We can deduce that Ibzan was a politician. Let's give him that much. The guy was a politician. How do we know? Well, because he swiftly, politically intermarried his children with outsiders. And this is what you did in the Middle East. This is why Solomon had so many wives, by the way. This wasn't a sexual thing. Well, I don't know Solomon's heart. Maybe some of it was, but mostly (laughs) this was not. This was about diplomacy. Take my daughter, and now we have a pact of peace between us because now my daughter is your wife, so we have to have peace, right? It's an in-law thing. So there's politics at play here, uh, and yet... Isn't it interesting that intermarriage was forbidden by Torah? Do you know why intermarriage was forbidden? Hmm? Because of faith? Because of compromise? Anyone have any other guesses? Those are good. Intermarriage was forbidden because of the land. Because land was so serious to God, when he gave land to Ephraim, the land needed to stay in Ephraim. When he gave land to Gad, it was Gad's land. It was Judah's land. We still don't comprehend how incredibly important the land of Israel is to God as an inheritance. And so he said, Ephraimites, I'm giving you this land. This is yours. Don't intermarry because if you intermarry now, whose land is it? This is why the daughters of Zelophehad, do you remember those daughters? who didn't have any brothers. Their father, Zelophehad, didn't have any sons, so there were no brothers. There was no one to keep the land inheritance in the family, so they went to Moses and said, what do we do? We think we should receive the inheritance. Moses took it to God and said, by all means, they should keep the inheritance. We need to keep it in the family. So land is at the heart of this. Why is God so specific and fascinated by the land? I I, I honestly don't know other than he has gifted it just as he gifted the earth to Adam and Eve and humanity at the beginning, and we blew it. We sold out. But it's the land, and so this intermarriage is really problematic because now, now who owns it? Now where does it go? Whose land is it really? Verse 11. Now Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel after him. He judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun, Elon means mighty oak or terebinth tree. And yet we have a 10-year judgeship of Elon and we know zilt. We know nothing of any mighty deeds, of anything that he did. In fact, with Ibzon, Elon, and the next guy, the 11th guardian, his name is Abdon. The only thing I think that we can guesstimate is that there was relative peace. We don't see any battles. We don't see any fighting. Abdon, verse 13, the son of Hillel, the Piratonite, judged Israel after him. He had 40 sons, 30 grandsons, who rode on 70 donkeys. So if we're taking the lead from what we talked about Sunday, the 30 donkeys and the picture of riding donkeys in peacetime, now they're riding on 70 donkeys, so things must be pretty chill. No one's in a hurry to get anywhere. And he judged Israel eight years, and Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piratonite, or Rothanite died and was buried in Paraton in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. That takes us to the end of the chapter. 25 years altogether here from Jephthah through these other three, 
or after Jephthah, and, and it appears to be, anyway, a time of relative peace and quiet. We have eight years with plain old Abdon. His name, by the way, Abdon means plain <laughs> or servant. He's a plain dude. So you have plain old Abdon. You have 10 years with a mighty unknown dude, Elon. And you've got seven years with Swifty the matchmaker. And that's it. And that's all I have to tell you about these judges. How many people list these guys when they're asked about the judges? Like if we had done a quiz back when we started judges and I said, write down all the judges you can think of, would you have thought of these guys after Jephthah? Most people wouldn't even know these names. Many of you were hearing them for the first time. Nobody would mention these guys among great people of faith. Will anybody mention you? Will we be remembered among the great names of the faithful? I want to end in the book of Malachi. So turn to the very end of your Hebrew scriptures. The book of Malachi, if you're Italian, Malachi. <laughs> Chapter three. There is the greatest little verse tucked away here that speaks to this very issue. Three guys that we've just named that most of us have never heard, or if you've heard it, you've forgotten because they're so insignificant in terms of deeds, in terms of what the scripture says about their lives. There's nothing here. Hey, at least they're named in scripture. Jake's not. Jacob is. But there is no Jacob Barksdale in the scriptures, as far as I can tell, with the exception maybe of Revelation 19, singing hallelujah. But he's not named. Who's gonna know Jake? Who's gonna remember any of us Malachi chapter three, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord and spoke to one another and the Lord, that he gave attention and heard it. Let me read that again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They will be mine says the Lord of hosts. On that day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Who's that? Those who fear the Lord and speak to one another about it. That is such a cool promise. It doesn't matter if I become known in this world for what I do. It doesn't, fame is, is such a lie of the enemy. It is irrelevant to people of faith. God knows. God remembers. He keeps a record of faith for those who name the Lord and speak to one another about him. Do you realize if that's you tonight, your name is already written in the book of remembrance because you have named Jesus as Lord, the one word that saves. You are remembered and will forever be remembered and honored by the Lord because you spoke the name. It's wonderful. Doesn't matter if you're swift. It doesn't matter if you're mighty. Doesn't matter if you're a servant. Doesn't matter if we see or experience God doing big, amazing, impressive things in our lives or not. He's always at work behind the scenes, behind the stones, behind the rocky patches. He is always at work in the lives of those who fear him and who speak 
his name to each other. Let's pray. Father, when we leave here tonight, I pray, before all of our heads hit our pillows, would you just remind us, each one, that you're not going to sleep tonight and that you never slumber and that you know our names. That is such a precious thought. You know our names. And we speak your name here tonight, Jesus. Even as we sang your name, Lord God, Jesus in worship, because we want to belong to you. Oh, Lord, keep us in your book of remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.